Good evening. I have to confess, uh, this afternoon I was putting the finishing touches on my sermon, and I just have to say I am so excited to be here with you all tonight and get to share what the Lord has taught me this week from his word. So why don't you guys turn in your Bibles to Matthew 5, verse 5, the fifth verse of the fifth chapter of the book of Matthew. And before we get started, we're going to pray. Please bow with me. God, we come to you tonight empty and needing to be filled. We come with hungry souls. Help us to feast on your truth. Open my mouth, O Lord, and my lips will declare your praise. Open our ears to your instruction, and command us to return from iniquity. Open our eyes, O Lord, that we may behold wondrous things out of your law. We need you now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, we have one verse tonight. It's very short, but I think you will find that it is deceptively simple-looking. Let's read it together. Verse 5 says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So far, we've had two other sermons on the Beatitudes, the section of the Sermon on the Mount that we are looking at recently. And Jason and Nick are two staff people who preached on those. They both commented on the broader context of the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, before they looked at their verses in detail, and I'd like to do that as well. I have one thought that I'd like to share, and that is that there may arise in the mind of some of you, and certainly in my mind when I look at the Beatitudes, a certain hesitation when you read them, they, because they seem at first glance to be almost legalistic, or maybe a little bit formulaic in the way that they're phrased. Be this way, and I will bless you in this way exhibit these traits that I have recommended to you and you will receive the corresponding reward or prize. So it, it's easy for gospel-loving, grace-espousing Christians, like I know many of you to be, to wonder what exactly is going on here? What is the purpose of these sayings? Why would Jesus start his famous sermon by sort of listing what seems to be a checklist of things for us to emulate so that we can obtain this blessing? And the answer, as it is so often when we're studying God's word, is hidden in the context of what is going on in our actual verse that we're looking at. And I think that it helps us to realize the, the reason for Jesus' sermon and the reason for why he's addressing his disciples. When we read verse 2, just three verses earlier, in our verse, we see that Christ's audience was his disciples. He was speaking to his followers. So given this bit of information, we know that not only the Beatitudes, but the entire Sermon on the Mount is not delivered to the masses as a prescriptive list of advice, but it's actually a manifesto that Jesus is laying down to be subscribed to by all who follow him. So no one who was there during the sermon could say, 
this doesn't seem fair, Jesus, for you to give us this list. I shouldn't need to clean up my life before following you. And they couldn't say that because they were already following him. They were already his followers. They were his disciples. The Sermon on the Mount is not the gate that bars entrance into the life of faith. It is the path. The sermon delineates the path of those who have already passed over the threshold of faith and are now asking, what does it mean for me to live my life in obedience to my Lord? So hence we have John Stott's summary. The whole sermon presupposes an acceptance of the gospel. So the Beatitudes set forth the blessings which God bestows, not as a reward of merit, but as a gift of grace, upon those in whom he is working such a character. The Beatitudes are not a reward for merit, but a gift of grace. So in case that has been weighing on your conscience as we've been studying these Beatitudes, take heart. That's not the purpose of these Beatitudes. It's not for us to feel guilty that, oh, how am I ever going to receive grace from God? There is grace for everyone who will admit that they fall short. And these Beatitudes are, in fact, a statement of the character that God is pleased to work in the hearts of those who follow him. So with that preliminary question answered, now we can turn to look at this specific verse in greater detail. We have three points. The first is the principle expressed. Our principle expressed, or what is meant by meekness. We need to define what meek means before we go any further. Many of us probably think of a meek person as someone who is quiet or unassuming, or soft-spoken, or mild, or gentle, or demure. These are all things that might come into our head. I think an excellent synonym for meekness is humility, and I'm going to use those words pretty much interchangeably as I speak. For some of us who hear the word meek, though, the image is conjured up in our mind of maybe Winnie the Pooh's best friend, the, the stammering and bashful piglet. That's the, the first image that sort of leapt into my mind when I thought, what is a meek person? And I think that goes too far. I think that that is actually an unhelpful image. Uh, we think that in order to be meek, we need to be timid or cowardly or fearful. Uh, maybe we think that meek people are passive and they sort of let other people walk all over them and they never assert their own ideas. We may even conceive of meek people as those who are forever declaiming their own faults, and that the constant cry of a meek person is, oh, I'm just so worthless, I'm not good at all, because I'm so meek. But no, my friends, I would submit that is not helpful or useful or even a biblical view of meekness. On the contrary, we have Martin Lloyd-Jones' helpful definition. Meekness is essentially a true view of oneself expressing itself in attitude and conduct to others. A true view of oneself. So far from constantly excoriating yourself in a misguided attempt at humility and just trying to heap criticism onto your own shoulders, rather the truly humble person is seeking to accurately evaluate themselves in light of God's truth that he's revealed. The meek have a true view, not a bad view, a true view of themselves. And we learn from God's word that, in many ways, we are very bad. 
And so that's why it can be difficult to distinguish the two. But we don't want to go too far and think that meekness is just thinking badly of ourselves. C.S. Lewis has a helpful passage on this in his book, The Screwtape Letters. He says, this demon, who's talking to this other demon, says, you must therefore conceal from this human the end of true humility. Let him think of it not as self-forgetfulness, but a certain kind of opinion, namely a low opinion of his own talents and character. Fix in his mind the idea that humility consists in trying to believe those talents to be less valuable than he really believes them to be. By this method, thousands of human beings have been brought to think that humility means pretty women trying to believe they are ugly and clever men trying to believe they are fools. So what Lewis is pointing out here is that this humility that's not really humility is in fact simply, it's another type of self-centeredness because you're still focused inwardly. In the name of meekness, we can spend all of our time trying to make ourselves feel smaller and more worthless, and you've never actually gotten your eyes off of yourself. They're still focused inwardly, and all of your effort is bound up in trying to make yourself feel bad. That's not true humility. Lewis continues in Screwtape to describe, in contrast, what our attitude should be. It says, God wants him to be, in the end, so free from any bias in his own favor that he can rejoice in his own talents or in a sunrise or an elephant or a waterfall. Just like any other good thing that God has made, you can rejoice in the ways that God has made you and has made you good. His whole effort, therefore, will be to get man's mind off the subject of himself altogether. And I think that's a very helpful way to conceive of meekness. And so Lewis has been paraphrased in another place as saying, Humility is not thinking less of yourself, it is thinking of yourself less. And that is another helpful summary. And I might add, it is also thinking of others more, in contrast. And beyond our relationships with other people, that's all good and helpful, and that's important. I think it's even more important to understand how humility extends to our relationship with God. To relate truly to God, to have a, a true view of ourselves in relation to him, means that we need to know that we are ultimately dust before him. When we see how big God is, when we see how supremely mighty and awesome he is, how transcendent, how utterly beyond all of us God is, that is when we realize our own smallness and we begin to grasp that true view of ourselves. It's the same feeling we get when we gaze at the stars or across over the ocean to see a beautiful sunset over the horizon. Our proximity to something so large elicits this response that's not entirely comfortable because we realize that we as humans are, in fact, in a way, not that consequential. We are, in a very real sense, inconsequential. And this is not a devaluation of humanity. This is an exaltation of God. In comparison to his majesty, we are minuscule. We are small next to the big God. And the meek person understands this deeply. In the very core of their being, the meek person knows God is big and I am small. Not just as a matter of emotion, but as a matter of truth. This is how things are. That is who God is. That is who I am in relation to God. 
This is a true view of myself. And therefore, the meek person relies on God for everything. They know that they are dependent, they know that they are small, and that God is in control and that he is big. So that's a meek attitude. On the other hand, I want you to see how bad it is when we don't embrace this. When we refuse meekness and instead choose self-glorification, we attempt to steal God's fame and honor. And what we do is set up our own kingdom in direct competition with God's, as though such a thing would ever be successful. And the, the prideful human heart is a wicked thing because it tells lies. It lies about who we are and about who God is. It doesn't subscribe to the true view, but instead manufactures a false view about itself. It says, I don't need you, God. I can live life on my own. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Furthermore, this sinful, prideful, unmeek heart defies God. It says, I don't need you, and so I won't depend on you in prayer. I won't bring you praise and worship. I won't live my life the way that you want me to, according to your word. And this makes God angry. This is not good. So if we're meek, we, we were, we're going to see who we truly are, not as valueless, but still as small in comparison to God, that he is the king and we are not. We are not the center of all things. God is. But I think it's, it's helpful also to examine the word pride because we hear it a lot. I hear it on campus a lot. They throw it up on the, at the football games on the Jumbotron or whatever that is, the screen. It's a Spartan pride. Right? And so you may reply, isn't it right to find joy in my accomplishments or the accomplishments of my kids or my colleagues or my friends? Isn't that a good thing? Shouldn't I have that type of pride? Shouldn't I feel glad that I'm a, a good man or a good woman or a college grad or a hardworking employee at work or a successful business owner or a loving parent or an obedient child? Shouldn't, shouldn't those be good things? Shouldn't I even feel glad that I'm a Christian? I should rejoice in those things, right? Well, yes, you should. I'm not meaning to demean those things. I'm not advocating an attitude that would say that those things are worthless. They are indeed good. But we need to be careful when we use the word pride to discuss how we feel about those things and to describe our emotions regarding them. We have to view them as the gifts that they are and not as trophies that we've collected by our own strength or our own wits or our own skill. God has given us everything that we have. And so to have pride in it as if you had given it to yourself or earned it yourself without help from God is to diminish, in a way, his glory and to heap up glory for yourself. And that is sin. If we do this, we, we try to convert the many aspects of our lives, which should be occasions to thank God, we try to change them into opportunities for self-aggrandizement or self-promotion or self-worship. And that's wrong. So in light of the, even in, in light of the recent and tragic events that we've just prayed about, that have been going on in Michigan State, it's good to remember that the, the many things that we, in fact, do take pride in are actually fleeting. The woman who exalts in her beauty and youth will fade eventually. The athlete's strength will dwindle. The largest financial empires will inevitably grind to a halt. 
And the phrase, I'm proud to be a Spartan, has taken on a decidedly different tone for me recently. Those things fade very quickly. And bearing this in mind, Jesus' commendation of the meek is actually mercy to us because it rescues us from putting our faith in those things and putting our identity and our boasting in things that are going to just crumble away and leave us empty. In contrast to hiding in institutions or successes or talents or in titles, the meek and humble person finds their refuge in God, not in any of those things. And they are content to know nothing apart from Christ, to have nothing apart from Christ, and to be nothing apart from who you are in Christ. That is meekness. So one final thing as we're, we're finishing up defining meekness to mention. It's very important. I want you to see in the, the two verses before this one that we're looking at now, verses 3 and 4, how clearly and inexorably the meekness of verse 5 flows from the poverty of spirit in verse 3 and the mourning in verse 4. So look at those verses as well. They, there's, they're surrounding this verse for a reason. This isn't just a random list of beatitudes. The meek person knows inescapably how destitute they are apart from God. They know how poor in spirit they are. And the meek person knows how deeply their sin matters. They mourn over it. They mourn over their wrongdoings. These first two beatitudes, they don't just precede this one chronologically. They precede it logically. They are actually prerequisites of meekness. Poverty of spirit and brokenheartedness over sin are positively necessary for us in order to be meek in the way that God wants us to be. So if you take those away, what do you get? If, well, if we're not poor in spirit, we're not going to see the need to humble ourselves before God because we will think, I'm self-sufficient, I can handle life on my own, whatever it throws at me, I can do it. I am strong enough to handle the life that I've been given. And so they don't lean on God knowing that they are poor in spirit. If we don't mourn over our sin, we will not see God's care for us as pure grace. We'll see it as a right, something that we deserve, because we're not that bad after all. But that's not true. God's love is unmerited gift. So without these two qualities that precede meekness in the Beatitudes, we, we might be self-deprecating, but that modesty is going to be utterly false. It will be the very falsest sort of modesty. We'll be humble just for the sake of humility, because we know that we ought to be, and that it's good, instead of just exuding humility because God has humbled us by the realization that there is nothing good inside of us. If we're not mourning our sin, if we're not poor in spirit, we will always think of ourselves as sufficient, and we won't be truly meek. So we need to dig into all of these Beatitudes at once and not just pick and choose which one we like the most. So the one who knows their sin and weeps over their sin also knows who they are. They have a true view of themselves in relation to God and in relation to others. They know that everything they receive from God is a gift and that every other person around them is not worse than they are. And in fact, I'm probably worse. In fact, the, the cry of the meek Christian is the tax collector's prayer. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. The humble Christian confesses with the Apostle Paul that Christ Jesus came into the world 
to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. So this is good for us to understand humility. But amazingly, that's not where the script stops. We are not just called to be humble and then be content in that lowly estate and just carry on. In fact, we see the Bible says in this verse, and rephrased, I think, in James 4.10, humble yourself before the Lord, and he will exalt you. This verse says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And that leads to some interesting questions. Why? Why does that happen? Let's, so let's turn to consider the, the foundation here, how those who make themselves low are in fact raised up by God. This is our second point, the principle examined. Which you could also say, what is the connection between humility and inheritance? Why is that the corresponding blessing for the meek, that they would inherit the earth? Why? Why is that Jesus' promise? Well, first, I think it's interesting to note that Matthew 5.5 5 is actually not the first place that this promise is made. It's very old. And so if you want to turn to Psalm 37, I just want to show you this psalm is ridiculously full of this promise over and over and over again. It's in verses 8 and 9. It's in verses 11 and 22 and 29. Verse 34, I'll read that one for you. It says, wait for the Lord and keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land. This reference to inheritance of the land is repeated over and over, almost ad nauseum in this psalm. It's so often, I can't believe I never noticed it before. And a lot of scholars think actually that Jesus was referencing this psalm in his beatitude, and I'm inclined to agree, because it's so often that it's mentioned. So it's clear that God is outlining here in this Psalm 37 and from our text, that God extends heavenly reward to those who are humble and those who wait for him. And this reward takes the form of land or the earth. And we know that Psalm, Psalm 37 is actually predated by even older promises. In, in a certain way, the Bible is really a book about a God who promises land to his heirs, his chosen heirs. If you think about it, it just pops up over and over again, doesn't it? When God made man and woman, he gave them land. He gave them a garden kingdom to inhabit, to maintain, and to rule over. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God made man and woman and gave them earth. He gave them land. When God called Abram, he didn't just say, I will be your God. He said that. That was the best part. But he also said, I will give you a country, a land, a promised land, an offspring that you can fill that land with. So this promise in Matthew 5, 5, it's not new. It's not a new promise. It's an old promise, an old promise with a new covenant remix, as I like to think of it. So we still haven't answered the question, why, though? In, in fact, we've only asked the question a little bit more persistently because it seems to be cropping up a lot. Why? Why are those who humble themselves before God given land? What does that have to do with anything? I think the reason is practical because we need space to exist, because we have bodies, but I think primarily 
much more than that. It's doxological. God gives us land. He gives us the earth. He gives us room so that we have a place to praise and glorify him. This is the purpose behind God's promises to Adam and Eve, to Abram, to the people, the audience of Psalm 37, his people Israel. When God promises any gift, not just land, but any gift, it's with the expectation that that land is going to be used to worship him. So when God gave Abram the land of Canaan, it wasn't just a bribe. It was, use this land, fill it up, and fill it with worshipers of me. What does this have to do with meekness? Land is a great blessing, but why promise the earth to the meek? Well, here's the reason. Jesus said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, precisely because he knew that the meek are the ones who would inherit the earth well. Once they had inherited the earth and then become its rulers, the meek are the ones that you want in charge. The meek are the ones who will use God's gift of the earth in the way that he intends. The purpose of inheriting something isn't just to have it. If you inherit money, you don't bury it in the ground. You go on a shopping spree or invest, probably, would be a better idea. And just in this way, the humble heirs of creation are the ones who can be trusted to invest well the gift that God has given. Uh, God has qualified them by working in them meekness to be the competent, just, and wise stewards of the earth because of that simple fact of their humility. Because they are humble, because they are meek, they will be good inheritors of the earth. They will not challenge God for the throne. They've already learned their lesson that they belong to him. They may be kings, but they know who the king of kings is. And we will not have any doubt that there will be malfeasance or breach of integrity or misconduct because King Jesus will have looked into these men and women's hearts and say, she is meek, he is humble, they are fit to inherit the earth. So this person who has embraced this attitude is enabled by God's command and blessing to inherit the earth and to rule it well the way that God desires. Finally, let's consider our third point in which we're going to look at our Lord Jesus, the principle exemplified, the master of meekness whose inheritance is imminent. If it's true that we become what we behold, and I think that's true, if we want to take on this meek spirit, we're going to need to behold someone meek. And where better to go than the meekest person who's ever lived? I want to read from Philippians 2, starting in verse 3. It's a passage that comes up very quickly when we think about humility. It says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So there is no identity higher than that of Jesus Christ. Before the incarnation, he was God, and one of the defining qualities of God is that there's no one higher than he is. 
And yet, and yet, Jesus consents almost inexplicably to, to enter the world in the likeness of men as a little baby born in a dirty stable. Could there be anything more helpless than a newborn child? Could God in his sovereign wisdom have ordained Jesus to a more lowly or inconspicuous beginning? I mean, he was born into just a normal family, the son of a carpenter living in Nazareth. He was required to be meek from the day of his birth, not just by his demeanor and the way he was growing in obedience, but by his circumstances. That was where he was put. And not just that, his adult life and ministry were attended by poverty and homelessness. He was derided, he was misquoted, he was sneered at. He was treated as a charlatan, or even worse, a peddler of cheap tricks, just a sort of sideshow magician. This is the Lord of the earth. This is how he lived, the one life that he lived on earth. He was frequently the object of mockery and ridicule, misunderstanding, rejection. He was subject to great indignity. He was unjustly accused. He was unfairly tried and convicted. He was savagely beaten. He was crucified mercilessly. This is the type of life that God lived as a human. The God who is above all of us. Why? I don't say this to incite your pity of Jesus, but your amazement. Why would this happen? How could the one who made the heavens agree to sleep beneath them? Why would the one who made the human body agree to take on all of its limitations and its pains and its inconveniences? He who was previously unmitigated in his splendor. Why would he do that? Why should the one from whom all life flows undergo death? Why? How? He took on all this willingly for you and for me. He chose meekness. He chose to be humble, and he chose it freely, and he chose it out of love for us. But the story doesn't end there. It's not just, oh, God is meek, and that is amazing and confusing. How is Jesus rewarded for his supreme display of meekness? Continuing in Philippians 2, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And none of us can say that this accolade is undeserved. It is, isn't it right? It is right, and it's full of wonder that he who was made for a little while lower than the angels should be crowned with glory and honor, and that everything should be put in subjection under his feet. John Piper writes, the, the glory of the paradoxical juxtaposition of seeming opposites in Jesus Christ, that glory is at the heart of how God shows himself glorious in the scriptures. How can Jesus be so big and so humble? How can he be so powerful and so meek? We marvel at him because his uncompromising justice is tempered with mercy. His majesty is sweetened by meekness. In his equality with God, he has a deep reverence for God. Though he is worthy of all good, he was patient to suffer evil. He baffled the proud scribes with his wisdom, but he was simple enough to be loved by children. 
He could still the storm with a word, but he would not strike down the Samaritans with lightning. And he would not take himself down from the cross. This is our transcendent and yet humble Lord. And by his humbleness, he makes himself worthy of all praise. The goal and end of everything is to see Jesus the King set up and glorified as the Lord of all creation and history. The very Alpha and Omega, the sovereign over all, from whom and through whom and to whom are all things. Oh, Christian, does this move you? Does this pierce your bones to their very marrow, to the division of flesh and spirit, even to your soul? Doesn't this Christ overwhelm you with his majesty? Doesn't he astound you with his goodness? Doesn't his power cause you to tremble? Doesn't he astonish you with his condescension and his humility and his meekness? Isn't his glory almost too bright for us to bear? Oh, that we would see more of Christ. That we would be more enraptured by his regal splendor. That we would joyously bask in his brilliant light. The man who is also God. The lion who is also the lamb. And oh, that we would yearn for the day when all the earth will see Jesus of Nazareth, the humble lamb of God, the meek son of man, exalted, lifted high, honored, glorified, and worshipped. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and dominion forevermore. Amen. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Thank you that you are meek for us, and we confess that you are worthy of all of our praise. We ask for eyes to see this and hearts to love it. In your name we pray.